this is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Welcome to episode 15 of Cold War Conversations. Firstly, I want to thank all our new subscribers to the podcast, our Facebook discussion group and Twitter account. I have genuinely been surprised by the interest, the warmth and friendliness of all those that have communicated with me. Your support is very much appreciated. If you want to get in touch, join our Facebook discussion group or follow us on Twitter. The best place is at coldwarconversations.com. Today we speak to Sabina, who was 13 when the wall opened in 1989. We hear about her childhood in East Germany and gain great insight into her life at the time, the pressures on her family and her first steps into West Berlin. I found Sabina's story very personal and moving, detailing her experiences as her country disappeared almost overnight, casting her family into an uncertain future as the safety net they were used to disappeared with it. I'm delighted to welcome Sabina to Cold War Conversations. Hi, Sabina. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Thank you very much. I've been uh, very much looking forward to uh, speaking to somebody who's lived in the, um, in the GDR. Uh, well, it's, um, it's going to be a flashback, that's for sure. Okay. <laughs> well... Uh, Let's hope it's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> um, can you can you if we just start off with like when 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 were you and where were you uh, born in the GDR? Uh, it was in 1977, and it was in Zwickau, the um, the city where they build the Trabi. But um, we moved to Berlin fairly soon after I was born. So yeah, I spent most of my childhood and well all of my childhood in Berlin really right so you don't really remember much of uh, Zwickau no I mean my uh, my nan used to live down there and we went to see her in a summer holiday so know a little bit about it and I've always been quite intrigued about sort of going back to that village and see if that triggers any more memories yeah and you know just a great thing like um google maps and things like that and i just found that you know the village she, she um lived in had actually merged with surrounding villages right and everything looks completely different from my memory so part of me doesn't want to go because it would probably skew everything so yeah. yeah it's funny how memory plays tricks like that and you remember particularly if you're a child because things seem so much bigger and longer and oh yeah and that sort of stuff as well what did your your parents do, or why why did they move from Zwickau to Berlin? Was it for work? Um, well, my dad. I'm just sort of trying to think how that all happened. My my parents met in a really funny way, which has to do with uh, the way we did things back then. Um, my mother actually had a had a son from someone else, um, which I wasn't even aware of, and um, she met my dad when she and a friend um, were in a restaurant. And um, they placed them on the same table because there was there was room. Right. And um, they spend the evening together and with complete strangers, basically. And um, I think from what I from what I was told, by the end of the night, he proposed to her. 
Wow, he's a fast oh, worker, your dad. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, it lasted 20 years. So yeah. There we are. Wow, so it's a real, uh, a proper blind date then. Yeah, pretty much unwitting, yeah. It wasn't even, you know, not planned. It just yeah. sort of happened. Yeah. But um, he lived in Berlin and um, was working in Berlin. And um, I think my mother was just co- probably quite keen to get out of the village because she had an illegitimate child and, you know, it was a village. And, yeah, you so... know, and everybody wanted to go to Berlin because there was just more opportunity there and you got more things. So I guess that's what it was. Yeah, I guess in a small village, everybody knows your business. So if oh, yeah. something like that happens, you never escape it unless you move to the big city indeed and so you moved to uh well you moved to berlin where, where in berlin did did you move to uh we moved to i think generally it was lichtenberg okay. and we sort of moved around various flats sort of in the vicinity so never they were never far away from each other right Right. And sorry, what 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 did your um your mum and dad do as a, as jobs? Um oh, how would you describe it? My mum was a um she did I uh, like architectural drawings. And okay. she was an architect, but she did sort of did sort of technical drawings for a company. And uh, my dad was trained as a carpenter from what I know, but he actually worked in the police. Okay. So he was like a um, community officer and generally policeman. So, yeah. Right. So like a beat officer, sort of mm-hmm. looked after the neighbourhood. Okay. Indeed, yeah. Okay. And and the sort of job that your mother did, was that unusual in, in the GDR? I mean, I know it's not unusual nowadays, but was that unusual for women to be doing that, that sort of role? Actually, from from what I gather... Um, and even like from my memory is that there was a lot more, um, equality in East Germany. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, the whole idea of a housewife was a bit uncouth. So they expected men and women to work. And obviously there was plenty of childcare available and, um, yeah, so men and women worked and that was perfectly normal. Whereas in the West, I think it was more, especially in the, um, you know, 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, it was more expected that the house, that, that the wife stays at home yeah. and, and keeps the house. So that wasn't really a case over yeah. in the East. Well, that was one of the things that obviously the, the GDR was quite famed for was the level of childcare mm. um, that was provided um, for free. Yeah. Uh, so the, the flats that you were in, what, what were they like? Well, um, you know, generally it was like you, you still see them around. They're still around. A lot of them just have been refurbished. Um, there were, you know, what they call what, what did they call Is it them? The Plattenbau. The Plattenbau, indeed. Yeah, yeah. they called them uh, workers' lockers as well. <laughs> <laughs> and they were almost well. They had an hour block, three flats on each floor. Yeah, and um, so there are three different types and but they were on each floor they were identical and if you happen to know a person in the same house in the same apartment block and they just lived two floors up mm-hmm. and you went into their flat it was just um an identical layout and then just a matter of how they designed how they sort of decorated it so it right. was a bit weird 
<laughs> right. And what sort of decoration did you... It's, it's quite... Have you ever been to the GDR Museum in Berlin? Yes, I have. And there were... There's only a limited amount of models of, you know, of, of furniture. Yeah. So it was quite likely that you could find the same type of um, wardrobe or, you know, cupboards in another flat because um, all the models were very similar. And I bought a design book... Uh, that GDR design, yeah, just to sort of find pictures of things I used to have, just to sort of you know jog some memories. It was just so identical across the board, really. Yeah, I guess um, it's sort of ma- making me smile because almost the equivalent is when you go into people's houses now, they've always got a bit of IKEA somewhere. Yeah, and uh, there's almost that sameness now with um with with some houses i must admit when i went in the gdr museum that um flat they had there the furnishings did remind me of my parents house to some degree because it did just have that 80s 70s 80s feel about it Mm. even even though it was even though it was gdr Um, well apparently the gdr exported quite a bit to to the west they got oh. the best bits. They 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 um, build and export it to the West, and um, that's how they got some revenue in. I mean, there's oh. an interesting documentary on YouTube about that. Um, oh, okay. Which I, didn't, I didn't know that until I watched that. So, no, I I didn't know that. Maybe my parents unknowingly had furnished their their <laughs> house with the uh, GDR furniture. Yeah, they were oh. all full of bugs and all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and what what were your your neighbours like? I mean, people, you know, the the whole nostalgia thing, sort of talk about the you know the bond of people together and stuff like that. But you know, was that necessarily true? Were you were your neighbours good? Oh well, um, I think it, it, I'm sure it's an individual experience for everyone. But and it, I don't know if it was influenced by the fact that my dad was in the police. But generally, I had the feeling that we were all really isolated from each other and everybody sort of mistrusted each other and was quick to pick up on each other's faults. And um, so we had one elderly neighbor who we barely saw. And then the neighbor across from us was a sort of self-proclaimed um, um, floor policeman. So he always made sure, you know, he, he kind of came out when he heard noises in the, um, in the hallway. Yeah. He came out and see who it was and if it was one of my friends who didn't live in a house you tell him off and tell him to leave and they don't belong here and it maybe it was just a particular type of psychopath we've always been quite lucky with neighbors like that but um <laughs> the, <laughs> the apartment block that we lived in had 11 floors so there were three flats on each floor that's 33 families if you will right and we only knew about one or two and wow. um there was, I just don't know, we, you know, some people you avoided more than others. And the, the walls were quite thin as well. So if somebody above or below you would play music loudly, then there'd usually be somebody going upstairs or downstairs knocking on the door and complaining. Right. And so, you would hear stuff through the heating system and all that stuff, yeah. Yeah. I guess people might have been wary with your father's job. Because mm. um, although he was in the 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 Volkspolizei I mean did he have any you know what presumably that he had to have some conversations with the Stasi 
Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, well, you know, have you read Stasiland? Yes, I have. Yes. Um, well, there is, you know, there were about 10% of the population that they said were informers, some informal, mm-hmm. some formal, and um, sort of everybody seemed to be spying on each other, it seems. And you just never knew if somebody, you know, was involved with them. But obviously, because my dad was in the police, he was more officially involved. And, you know, he never spoke much about it. Um, but I'm, I'm sure people have approached him and his part of his job was to sort of keep an eye on people. Yeah. And, you know, report back. And from what I heard through sort of family members, he's been really uncomfortable with that. And to the point that ver- that often... He wouldn't report certain things, right? but he was always under a lot of pressure. He always played that down when I asked him mm-hmm. um, and said, oh, it wasn't that bad back then. They're all just exaggerating. But when I talked to my granddad, um, he said that often my dad would be around his and just be despairing because, you know, the Stasi put so much pressure on him. Right. And there's, obvi- there's obviously another background to that is because... Um, we had a family member that applied to leave the GDR and um, then moved to the West. And that instantly put us in a spotlight as well. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'd, I would have thought that put him under two sort of two areas of scrutiny, one suspicion and the other one that, you know, they, they want him to keep an eye on people in the neighborhood as well. Hmm. Okay. Did did he, are you aware of any extra privileges he had because he was in the police? Um, well, it's sort of, we had, we had a telephone before others. I mean, you had phone booths around the neighborhood, but we had a telephone and I think that was, it's just, you needed it for the jobs. Like somebody has a company car nowadays, I reckon. Um, and we used to have, which again, kind of contradicts what I said earlier. We used to have these sort of community festivals, were sort of our particular neighborhood, like a neighborhood festival. Yeah. Stalls and and games arranged for children and all kinds of stuff. And then they had a bonfire in the evening. And him obviously being a police, a community police officer, he'd supervise that. So he'd sit in the sort of office that overlooked the square. Yeah. And um, we got to go up there and watch the fire from up there, which, um, you know, was a privilege. Yeah. And, um, you know, sometimes we'd be able to get sort of certain sweets that you couldn't get very often or things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And your relative that, that moved to the West, did you stay in touch with, with them? Um, yeah. I mean, when did he, I think he moved over in 1985 or 86. And again, it's sort of, if you had dealings with the Stasi, you didn't you didn't talk about it because you know and it was all kind of kept low key because talking about it would just put them in a bad light which again would backfire on you yeah. so we all kind of pretended when stuff happened we pretended it didn't happen and us kids were tended to be quite oblivious to it anyway right yeah because but, um, yeah go on no go on no, I was going to say because of the 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 age that you were, because you were, you know, mm. it was you spent your, you know, your childhood um, as you know w- within the GDR. So, mm-hmm. how much were you aware of like 
not saying things outside the family circle or not saying certain things to certain people? Um, it must have been for parents, it must have been really difficult to sort of permit certain things within the family and then telling their kids um, not to say anything outside but not being able to say why. Yeah. Because kids inevitably would blab. Yeah. So with us, it was often because we only had two TV channels when I grew up, and and my dad would religiously watch um, West German TV and West German news because obviously ours were a little bit unreliable, so to speak. Um, <laughs> um, and they had the best, you know, they had American TV series on the West German yeah. channels and all that exciting stuff. Yeah. And. As kids used to go to school the next day and say, oh, did she, did she watch that? And did she watch that? And it was all like Charlie's Angels and stuff like that. Um, but presumably you had to watch who you shared that information with because there would have been children at your school whose parents were hardcore SED members. Oh, yeah. Um, strangely enough, sometimes with, with us kids, I think it all worked through sort of kind of gut, gut feeling. There were children. I remember particularly, I had a friend whose parents were what we called absolutely red. And all the kids were sort of high performers that would, you know, go to Verbelinze, to the, the pioneer camp for like, you know, model children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, once I sort of mentioned something to, to him and about a West German TV show, and he's like, oh, we don't watch that kind of stuff. And he got really kind of flustered. Um, I don't think he necessarily went and reported back, um, because again, I don't, yeah, I don't think they're like the the friends I had were actively recruited into sort of spying on people, but he could tell who was sort of redder than the others and who you could talk to. Same with teachers. You had to be careful, but again, we weren't really, we knew we weren't supposed to talk about it and it was uncouth. And when... But nobody sort of said, oh, the Stasi's going to come and get you because yeah. that would have reflected bad on the government. Yeah, it's more... We the- just knew there was something kind of, you know, just like a vague feeling of threat. And um, But it's, again, you know, kids can't really estimate danger. So it is, you know, even the most innocent things like, well, you think this is none of that is political. So why why are they being funny about it? Like I had a children's book that that used to belong to my mum, mm-hmm. and which was then ended up that was before the war went up. It was that old, but after the war went up, that that book came only out through a West German publisher, right? And it wasn't available in the East. And um, I had that book, so obviously it was classed as banned. But I wasn't aware of that because it was a children's book. Yeah, and um, it was confiscated in school by a teacher when I brought it to school, and she just sort of, you know, sneaked it back to me and sort of said, "Okay, don't bring that in again." Yeah, but yeah, but, you know, yeah, some teachers were nicer than others, but yeah. after a while, you got a feeling about, you know, what yeah. what what you could get away with with whom. So yeah, yeah, it's a bit mm-hmm. like teachers anywhere to some degree, but yeah. not to that. <laughs> You know, not to that extent where you're having to think about, you know, what their political allegiances are. But as a child, as you say, you're not thinking that you're, you're, um, you know, 
you're just focusing on on being a child so yeah your your schooling what what was that like i mean how indoctrinated was the education you know was it you know obviously you you learn maths and stuff like that but how much of there was the the political message put through to you that was actually it's actually quite funny to the point that i think somewhere in my dad's attic i still got a few east german um school books just because of that for for, for a funny memory of that <laughs> um that when we were younger um when we had a sort of like our reading book that was issued every year that would have poetry and stories and articles and all kinds of stuff into it. They were always themed. So I do remember doing in first or second grade doing like a little collage uh, about, um, who was it? Um, Rosa Luxemburg. And, you know, you had the six-year-old, seven-year-old scribblings that would say Rosa Luxemburg was murdered by the Nazis and she was a socialist. That kind of thing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we'd, um, all the stories we'd have, we'd have in the books, a lot of the stories were about how great the Soviets were and they're all friendly to children and do the best ice cream and how the resistance worked in the war, obviously communist resistance, that was yeah. the big focus. And um, we'd have Christmas stories about children eating like jam sandwiches and concentration camps and some really bleak stuff, but yeah. you know, that you wouldn't necessarily see in, in books now, like for younger children. Yeah. Um, and then later on, I think when we sort of moved up to eighth grade, so when you were about 15, 14, 15, um, they would start proper, well, propaganda classes, really, which they called Staatsbürgerkunde. Right. Which was, um, you know, basic sort of like general knowledge about the state and how it works. And that was that's when the proper, you know, unsubtle indoctrination kicked in. Right. Right. Okay. And... Were you sort of a young pioneer or anything like that? Oh, yeah. yeah. And that was compulsory. Yeah. Yeah. I've only experienced um, two, I think, two incidences when I was growing up where a child was kicked out of the organization. And that was a major, major, you know, you were basically ostracized after that. So you didn't want that happening to you. But, yeah, you had to join. It was just a thing. Right. And then what, what did you do in the Young Pioneers? Um, I remember we had every Wednesday, we had sort of after school meetings and, and some of them were, you know, political and we, I don't know, we, again, we did collages and discussed certain things and um, some of them were quite useful. We used to do things like um, get doing first aid courses and, and, and then sometimes we'd go to the cinema and I always try to dodge the, the, the boring stuff. And actually had a teacher had a go at me once because she said, you only ever go to the cinema once. You never come to the ones that really matter. <laughs> and uh, it was a bit awkward. <laughs> but yes, you know, there was sort of lots of activities. And on certain, we had, um, we had assemblies where he sort of gathered in the, in the courtyard of the school and had to do all kinds of weird, creative kind of, you know, like the Hitler youth, just, just in red. Yeah. That kind of thing. 
Yeah, salute the flag and sing the anthem. And all that stuff, yeah. yeah. I remember, oh dear, <laughs> I wrote a poem about Ernst Tailman when I was about eight or so, and I had to read it in front of the school because they were all so impressed by it. Wow. So, yeah. That's I was, good. Uh, well, I'm impressed yeah, by that. <laughs> that's like a red a red nerd that is of anything <laughs> oh, but it's sort of inter- it's interesting to hear how much that you know that political indoctrination is sort of like put in even at such an early age mm. that you were sort of like you know learning about you know Rosa Luxemburg Karl Liebknecht and uh, Ernst mm. Talman you know e- even at that age you had an awareness of that um, and what were you told about the West? Was it like the big bad fascist West? Is that generally the message? Oh, they called them. They called them the imperialist warmongers. And um, the stories we'd hear usually would obviously be targeted at children. There was one story I remember about um, a little girl that came from a poor family and they had no money for toys, so she went and stole toys from a shop and. And they said, oh, this is this is what capitalism looks like. And, you know, sort of really sort of hyperbolic stories. And then sometimes, you know, they would not even mess about. They would just go straight to the point and tell us in school that, you know, the Americans were going to nuke us. Yeah. And I, I, I grew up with an absolutely chronic fear of the bomb. Like every thunderstorm when I saw a flash of lightning outside, I thought, oh, God, that's it now. That's it now. Right. Absolutely terrified of it. And and living in Berlin, how aware of you were of of West Berlin? Well, I mean, obviously they kept us quite separated, and the whole the way the war was designed was keep us in rather than keep the bad guys out. So you yeah. couldn't go, even go up to the wall. But there were parts of when you know a train would come quite close to the wall, and you could see it, and then you sort of try to peek over it and see if you could see anything over there. Mm. But he had at the same time. I felt at least I saw the wall and it was fascinating, like forbidden territory. And I wanted to see stuff, but at the same time I was afraid of it. I didn't want to be sort of part of that other world. Yeah. So you believed some of the propaganda or. Mm. It was just, you know, everywhere. It was the only, the only reason why it wasn't like a hundred percent indoctrination it's because we had access to West German TV and he yeah. saw a slightly different world in there that wasn't quite match up with what they told us. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now that, that that's really interesting. So um, what did you do in your spare time when you weren't at school? I mean, what, what did you do as a child? Um, I was actually quite, don't know, quite reclusive. Um, I, sp- I spend a lot of time at home mm-hmm. and um, wrote stories and um, drew comic books. Funny enough, we did. We only had sort of one or two types of comic books, and I had from a family friend. I had like a Tom and Jerry comic book that was my one of my biggest treasures. Yeah. And so I was copying pictures out of that and things like that. So um, yeah. And. As far as you know, shopping and and buying, you know, clothes and things like that. What what was that like? I mean, was it again? There's only like three types of dress you can get, or or was it, you know, not as bad as what I just described? No, I mean, it was. You had sort of certain types of fashions. I mean, 
Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. It was it was more um, it was stricter I think in the sixties and seventies you know when it was completely you know you were not allowed like to wear jeans or go to school in jeans and everybody wanted them but you were not allowed to have them and I think by the time I kind of came around and grew up you know it wasn't as bad anymore so they were more tolerant about it yeah but um, like with most of things it's like because we lived in the capital. Um, stuff was more readily available. Yeah. But anything in terms of clothing, foods, and, you know, um, deli stuff. I do remember we were sending certain types of jam and things down to my grandma who lived, you know, in that village because they just wouldn't get that down there. But that sort of seemed completely normal to us, so I never questioned that. Yeah. So you weren't queuing for food or anything like that. Uh, general foodstuffs were generally were readily available in Berlin. Fairly. I mean, you, it would there would be days when, you know, you'd go to the supermarket and they would be out of something, but it wouldn't happen as often as, you know, if you were in a village somewhere. I mean, we were on holiday and went to a village and um, we wanted to get some milk and they said, we haven't got milk. They'll be here the day after tomorrow probably. And... Um, stuff like I remember even in Berlin when you wanted something like cornflakes of which there only was one type as far as I remember um, that would only be there for about twice a year and then mm-hmm. a rumour would go around the neighbourhood saying they have cornflakes in the supermarkets and everybody would run <laughs> <laughs> and then you'd only but you'd only be allowed to buy one or two packages right so yeah um Stuff like certain type of fruits, like oranges and things, you'd only get around Christmas time. And things like strawberries, sort of like seasonal fruits, there would be stands outside and people would queue up for that. There would be long queues for that. Right. And so how old were you when the wall came down? What age would you have been? Uh, Twelve. Twelve. I mean, how much were you aware that, that things were changing and that the you know, that the border was open. I do. I mean, I was never particularly interested in politics when I was a kid because I found it quite, every time we sort of slightly approached the subject, I found it quite anxiety-inducing because I didn't understand it. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, generally I just focused sort of on my childhood and my life there. And But we were aware of the Monday demonstrations you know, when people more and more people would take to the streets and protest against the government, and that would happen every Monday. And there would be, obviously, you could sense there was something in the air, and my parents would watch it. And 
there was sort of rumors about, oh God, what if the Soviets go in with the army to kind of stop it? And, and there was quite a bit of tension, yeah. but most of it really passed me by. Yeah. So you could see your parents talking about it and sort of showing mm. an interest in it on TV, but you not necessarily comprehending mm. what was going on. Yeah. So when, when the wall came down, I'm trying to understand sort of like what happened. Did you go over to, the, to West Berlin to, to visit or? or well, funny, you... again, funny enough, um, the night that happened, um, it was kind of sort of off the cuff the way it's happened because, um, you know, they had that press conference um, where the journalists were asking, did you just say the borders are open from when are the borders open? When can people go over? And they said, they kind of looked through their papers and went, I think it's now. Yeah. So Fort, I think he said, Shabovsky. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, um, and I think a lot of people just, you know, because it was so dangerous to approach the border and so many people had been killed trying to cross it. Just, I think people were just stunned at first. And then, you know, they started, people started going up to the border and the guards didn't know anything about it and they just had to cave in the end. So it all kind of happened um, late at night and yeah. I wasn't wet by then. And I think my parents were always quite careful anyway about that kind of stuff. So um, the next day um, I went to school and I saw two of my friends walking the way to school, but they didn't have their bags with them. And I said, where are you going? What are you doing? They said, we're going to West Berlin. And I was like, yeah, right. And then they did show up in the end because they were just too chicken to skip school. And, um, and then I thought they just made it up. But then over the next few weeks, um, more and more people were missing or didn't come back to school or, and that sort of, I mean, we were, by then, obviously, we were aware that the wall is open, but we were still unsure about what was going to happen, how we were meant to behave, especially the teachers. You know, yeah. are we now still following the rules to the letter or is that changing? Yeah. And it was quite an uncertain time because we just didn't know what was going to happen. Are they going to close the wall again? And you know, and if you now show some sort of enthusiasm about the wall being down and they put the wall back up, will that have negative consequences for you? Yeah. So people were quite, you know, what to do about it. Yeah, no, I can understand that. So wh- when was the first time you went over to West Berlin with you? It sounds like your parents are very wary of, of uh, you know, doing anything during that yeah. period. Um, I think it was the end of November. Right. 1989. And um, I think partly it was also practicality because they sort of said, well, if we're going over there now, it's going to be absolutely heaving. We'll just wait until it's calmed <laughs> yeah. down a just little bit. Just avoid the crowds. That sounds, yeah, like, yeah. that sounds like very practical advice. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So um, we went over and, you know, they, they, they got people the Begrüßungsgeld, that yeah, welcome the, money. Yeah, the 100 Deutschmark. That's right, for everyone, which I had never seen 100 marks in, in you know. Yeah. I was just, was an insane amount of money for me. And, of course, you couldn't say no to that. Yeah. But we queued about six hours in the freezing cold. Right. It was, yeah, you had that dedication. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what were your first impressions of, of West Berlin? 
Um, we got we got up quite early and crossed um, went over the crossing at Warsaw Straße where that big bridge is. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so I think you my... went into Kreuzberg, which is probably not the most impressive. Um... Yeah, it was uh... <laughs> kind of considered a more I'd reckon at the time a more sort of slummy area. Yeah. Not not slum like as in you know. No, the way but we know but, it now, but not but as working, um, very working class, very yeah. fairly. Poor. Yeah, not as glitzy as the Kudam or somewhere like that. Mm. And I think the first impression I had was how dirty it was, like how much disposable stuff like Coke cans and all kinds of rubbish was strewn around in the street that just we didn't have. Yeah. And and that shocked me. And um, But then once we got to the Kudam... Um, we were just absolutely blown away by the shop windows and the merchandise and all the stuff you could get and all the stuff you'd always seen on West German adverts, but you could never get, obviously get a hold of. And suddenly yeah. it was all there for the taking. And my, my dad hung on to our, uh, hung on to our money quite tightly because us kids just went crazy. We were like, Oh my God, I want this. I want that. Yeah. And he's but... like, we're not wasting that money on silly stuff. Yeah. So, um, they bought a few little treats, but saved most of it. But it was it was um, overwhelming experience, definitely. Yeah, and so you went you went over on on that day. Presumably, came back that evening. Mm-hmm. Um, did you then go more frequently after that that point? No, actually, we didn't. Um, you know, some sort of later on, we would go with like schools to a cinema or various exhibitions and things yeah. like that. But at first we at first we didn't really. Yeah. I mean, we didn't have much money anyway, and because the exchange rate was quite, you know, quite high to begin yeah. with, yeah. there wasn't really much we could afford. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah, we just we didn't do much of yeah. that. And your dad's probably thought, right? We've been over there. We've seen it. That's that box ticked. Don't need to do it again. Oh, but you know, actually, now that you're saying this. <laughs> We went a um, couple of three years ago. We went on a road trip through America, and he used to say I have that jokey phrase was like, "What? Well, seen the Grand Canyon? Box ticked." Yeah. And it's just funny. That's exactly what he was like. <laughs> oh dear. Oh. No, that I I can see. I you know it, it's interesting because it's difficult to put your you know being somebody who's you know lived in the in the west all their life it's it's trying to you know get your head around that sort of you know fear of whatever you're doing is going to be perceived as detrimental to your future career your future life mm. you know that, that all of that sort of psychological pressure there and i can understand why your parents were wary about going over certainly in that first wave for how they would mm. be perceived as you say, if the war went up again. Yeah, and especially, like I said, because my dad was in the police, there would have been pressure on him anyway to act a certain way. Yeah. I mean, if you wanted to go to university, as far as I know, you had to prove that you were a party loyal or you had to join the party. Um, and, you know, for certain privileges, you had to prove loyalty. And some people who sort of through their jobs would have access to extra information they were properly scrutinized, like English teachers, for instance, who had the, you know, the linguistic ability to communicate with the West. Yeah. Obviously, they would be more under more scrutiny than Russian teachers, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. 
So how is your Russian? Is it still up to scratch? Oh, I know the odd phrase still. And I can sort of, you know, read the words, like recognize the letter and read the words. But often I wouldn't be able to tell you what the word means. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a few little phrases, that kind of thing, you know. So, I mean, it's probably difficult for you to say this, but obviously, you know, after a certain time, it then appears as though reunification is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, did you see a change in your parents or your family as, you know, as time went on? Did they appear to become more uh, used to, you know, the Western way of life or, or not? I think... They were always quite practical people, and they were um, they were never particularly party loyal. They were just survivors, you know. They sort of played the game where they had to play the game in order to, you know, not endanger their family. And right. um, but they wouldn't didn't want to be be kind of crushed by that system. For instance, afterwards, when you know the Stasi files were available, people could go and and look at them. Yeah, whatever hadn't been shredded frantically, you know. Yeah. Um, my parents decided not to go because they didn't want to find out that there might have been a family friend or an uncle or somebody that had spied on them because yeah. I don't know he was blackmailed into it or something. So if there were any informants on us, we didn't know. We to this day don't know who it was. So, and we don't want to know really because, yeah. no, like I said, I... a lot of the hmm? go on, go on. No. Yeah, a lot of the informal informers were um, kind of blackmailed into it. They said, if we don't tell this, then your kid's not going to go to university, or your wife's going to lose the job. So um, it's um, you know a lot of people didn't do that voluntarily. And it would have caused too many problems down the line, like breakdown in family or whatever, if there had been anything. So it just never came out. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think that's the the thing that people um, certainly I've hadn't necessarily understood, but I have understood it more the more I've read um, and heard about the GDR is that sort of psychological pressure that the Stasi put people under to become an informer and again it's about future career their child's education it's all of those elements and you you wonder you know how you would behave under that sort of pressure and i think it's mm-hmm. a diff- it's a difficult you know it's it's a difficult thing to um to think how <laughs> you know i'd like to think how i would um, yeah. act but when the reality happens and you're in that situation and you can see no way out you know you don't know the wall's going to fall in three years well time exactly or something like that. a beautiful thing yeah exactly exactly so when reunification happens um what happens in your neighborhood i mean did it did basically the the shops completely change overnight or, or um, what, what sort of happened you know how, how did that process happen um well there was one particular i mean at first now okay what what first happened i think there was one particular night and one of our family friends worked in a supermarket and she had to pull a night shift because they were clearing out all the east german products and putting the west german products in and overnight our supermarkets became 
you know, the um, utopias, the commercial utopias that we'd always seen on telly. And yeah. I remember the next day my mum would actually go and she went to the shop and it's the first time I tasted a kiwi and popcorn and, you know, various other things where I'm like, what are these magical things? Yeah. <laughs> but it was, yeah, I, I remember that that's still so stuck in my memory. And that must have been bizarre. That's, you know, that like sudden um, change. I mean, it's like, um, you know, the country that you'd grown up and known and sung its national anthem just disappearing overnight. Yeah, it was... Um, I do remember there was a lot of anxiety. There was a lot of fear about what was going to happen. The way it, it affected us the most was that um, I think my the company my mum worked for went bust. And obviously after the war came down, my dad, I don't exactly know how to, but, you know, it's kind of like after the denazification. It's the same happened after East Germany collapsed. Mm. That, you know, all the kind of... Um, really kind of strict party loyal people were taken out of public positions. Yeah. And I think from what I know, and I could be wrong about this, you know, the police force was changed. So my dad wasn't a policeman for long after the wall came down. Right. And, um, and there was a time when both my parents were unemployed. And obviously after all the propaganda we'd had when we were children about how poor families are, we're absolutely terrified. Yeah. And then my dad was a cleaner for some time and they just took any jobs they could find or replenishing um, um, vending machines and things like that. He'd do anything to keep the family going. Yeah. So, yeah, that must have been a really traumatic time because... It was scary. That, it was that, definitely scary. You know, the, 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 the things you read about the GDR is if you can take the the Stasi state to one side, which I know is not, not so easy to do, but at least you knew you had, uh, well, you know, job security, providing you kept your nose down and didn't, you know, yeah. break, do anything. You knew that you were going to have an income mm. um, and not be made homeless. Mm. But obviously with reunification and the situation you, you and your parents were in, um, that, was completely the op- you know the opposite you didn't have security mm. there i think that's the thing Secu- we had security and i think that's exactly what people who now want wanted all kind of the ostalgi wave and who wanted all back and you know you hear people saying we can we put the wall back up they missed that security yeah and it's a lot of older people because obviously they were taken care of but in in west germany you had so much um poverty for older people that you know they were they were absolutely terrified, yeah. and I can understand why. And yeah, so how um, old was your dad when the wall came down? Oh God, he was in yeah. his forties. Um, wow. Hmm. Okay. Um, I mean, there were like there was a lot of sort of retraining going on yeah. with 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 yeah. a lot of people, yeah. and um, but it was yeah. it was quite a tough time, yeah. and it affected the economy obviously because. You know, a lot of sort of aid money was pumped into East Germany. Yeah. That sort of saved us, but that meant extra taxes for people from the West. And I remember I called it a solidarity tax, I think. Yeah. And they begrudged us that a lot. So I had, when I was 14, I had work experience in a West Berlin bookshop. Mm-hmm. 
and I did overhear them talking quite a bit about, you know, what what ticks and leeches the East Germans are, and you know, and I was like, "What? Well, thanks a lot. I'm right here. I can hear you." You know. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> so there was a lot of bad blood, and yeah. it took a long time for that to go away. Yeah. And and did your parents then manage to get jobs in the in the new Germany? Um, after a few years, yes, yes, definitely. I mean, my dad took up a few sort of, you know, various jobs. Yeah. And um, now then he ended up he ended up sort of in retail. He's a very good salesman for yeah. somebody who grew up in the east. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, yeah. And did he, I mean, I'm just interested to know, I mean, if you'd worked in the Volkspolitz side, did you get a police pension in the new Germany or, or not? No, not, not that I know of. I think all of that pretty much disappeared. I mean, wow. even qualifications. Yeah. I had, I had um, a relative who studied physics and you'd think physics is not political, hmm. but who studied physics, I think at university in the East and her diploma wasn't valid anymore. Wow. Afterwards, so you'd just be like, <laughs> make well, sense of that one. Yeah, you don't think that, do you? You just no. think that that, that would I mean, be politically neutral, something yeah. like physics. Well, there we are. And what about the, you know, you mentioned that there was a family who was really red. Mm-hmm. Where, what, what happened to them when the war came down? Did they just disappear or what did they do? Um, well, you know, sort of, I lost touch with a lot of people because, you know, we moved, we moved away and everybody yeah. went yeah. to different ways and stuff. But um, right after the war came down, where there was still that sort of insecurity and not knowing what's going to happen. I remember there was a parent teacher meeting where sometimes as kids were meant to go along and perform a little program, like recite poetry or sing yeah. or something yeah. like that. And obviously back in the days, we would all be expected to go in our pioneer uniform. Mm-hmm. And um, at that point was my little brother who just turned six and he was so excited for that uniform. You always had a thing for it. Um, and he insisted on going. And my mother was sort of unsure about like, is that really going to be a good idea? I'm not sure. And he turned up in uniform, but it was funny that the Red family I knew, they were one of the first ones to act like they had never anything to do with it. Really? And they were just touching about my brother showing up in uniform. Wow. <laughs> that just goes to show. No, 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 no. That, that that's just goes to show the, yeah. their, their beliefs went out the window when they saw which way the wind was blowing. Mm. Yeah. Wow. It was interesting as well in terms of schooling as well, because like we said, some subjects you think are neutral. But the one thing I learned that really became sort of a stark reminder that history is written, written by the winners is that um, obviously our history books completely turned around. And I had to, oh God, how old was I? I must have been about 16. And we had to... Um, I was asked by my history teacher to do a presentation on the Russian Revolution, which back in the days, you weren't allowed to call it a Russian Revolution. That was sort of almost like a bad term for it, you know. Right. That was the imperialist's term for it. Exactly. Exactly. We called it the Great Socialist October Revolution. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I just, we had no access to internet, obviously, back then. And the only sort of... um, 
encyclopedia I had was what we had on the shelf and I used that not even thinking and used all the terminology out of that and stood up in front of the class. I was terrified anyway. Mm. And um, as soon as I started talking about it, she stopped me and looked at the class and said, what's wrong with it? And then obviously you had the nerds piping up. It's not called the great socialist October revolution. And she just sort of started mocking that I should change my reading list or update my reading list. And I thought like, you know what? About six years ago, five years ago, if I had called it the Russian revolution, you would have reported me. Yeah. Yeah. And that, <laughs> so, that's really cruel as a teacher to do that because I mean, you know, if you're, and you know, you described your circumstances there where there wasn't a lot of money in the household and you know, you're obviously using an old book and not necessarily being aware of that. And I don't know, I, I just find that very um, heartless for a teacher to, show up a child like that in front of the um the rest of the class but um, um it was but funny thing is it was fairly common yeah and were I these the same one, teachers that you'd had prior to i think so i mean i changed we changed schools because our entire school system changed um you know we used to have schools where you started at first grade when you were six years old and you finished a 10th grade when you were um what 16 mm-hmm. and um and then you could choose on to either go into apprenticeships or higher education and obviously in east um in east germany you had to perform outstandingly and had you know have party loyal families in order to go to university so most people just did apprenticeships yeah and um that system changed and it was split up into primary school middle school and um you know higher education in terms of pre- prepared you like senior high school that prepared you for university. Yeah. And so friendship groups were formants. And um, yeah, so we had different teachers, but I think a lot of them had been around as teachers for quite a while. But I think one, and that's probably in a lot of, you'll find that in a lot of countries where people are kind of under a regime that, you know, where people are prying on each other constantly as that it sort of, kills off the um, level of empathy that you allow yourself to have with other people because it's hard enough to take care of your own family. You can't really, you know, you can't really sort of worry about others. Yeah. And that, and I think that was a fairly common feature across the board that there was not a lot of empathy, not a lot of compassion around. We had, Mm. we had theoretical compassion. We were all drawing sunflowers in kindergarten for Nelson Mandela and Angela Davis, you know? Yeah. But, um, (laughs) but when it came to sort of, you you know, your immediate, um, neighborhood. Yeah. Everybody kept to themselves really. Well, you never knew who to trust. I mean, that was the, 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 the thing. So do you, do you stay in touch with anybody from your school days or, or not? Well, I mean, sort of, I moved through various schools um, and um, and then lived abroad. And so I lost touch with quite a lot of people. There's one person, one or two people that I still occasionally talk to. Yeah. And, um, the, but not very often, but we're, we're still sort of in touch. But And I used to be in touch with some of the teachers as well, but that's all kind of disappeared. And I feel yeah. like it's a different life. I feel over here now I'm a different person and it's, it almost feels unreal. Like it's happened to someone else. 
Yeah, no, I can I can imagine that because I mean it was very much your you know your your childhood and I mean I know I struggled to remember you know sort of my childhood and and details from it and things have changed so much now. Mm. Um I mean what what how would you describe your childhood if you if you had to you know sort of describe it in one one sentence do you do you have fond memories of it um i think that's that's where i'm always going to have quite a schizophrenic relationship with it because i do have fond memories and i'm a really big sort of childhood childhood nostalgia person and i still there's still so many things that i still have and don't want to throw away mm. because they sort of provide me with comfort and you know and i love i love digging around in memories and things like that and and telling stories and stuff it's just the way I am at the same time there's a lot of things that it's kind of like one of the reasons probably why I moved to Britain is because I can only sort of love Germany from a distance it's just too much sort of anxiety gets triggered being in certain places because that just reminds me of it I look at a lot of things from a distance yeah um, but I don't allow myself to really go into it and school was not fun not a fun time i mean there were moments obviously that were fun but generally it was i was really i mean i was always quite a sensitive character and Mm. um i was always an anxious child and and there was a lot of bullying from teachers and and kids simply because that like that's like i said that sense of compassion just wasn't developed in people yeah so and yeah, and you know, I don't, I don't really want to look back on that. So, and this is no. probably a reason why I'm not in touch with a lot of the people from from my childhood. Yeah, no, I can see how some of those experiences would, you know, would stay with you, and you don't necessarily want to be reminded of those. So, I'm sorry if it if it's made you yeah. uncomfortable in any way. No, it's it's all right. It's um, it's sort of you know, I can. It's again. It's quite schizophrenic. I can, on the one hand, quite rationally talk about certain things, but that doesn't mean I sort of allow myself to dip into it emotionally. If that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. um yeah. No, absolutely. So um, what what was your favourite GDR TV program when you were a kid? It's quite quite hard to say because <laughs> despite everything, they produced some amazing stuff like some of them quite dark from what I remember. I mean, the Russian fairy tales are fantastic. Yeah. Well, I, um, I did put something on Twitter a while back about the singing ringing tree. Bloody hell. Which they showed in the UK. And I remember having nightmares about this program. <laughs> it freaked me out. Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, we always admired it. And I remember my aunt going on and on about how wonderful that film is. But the bear and the fish freaked me out quite a bit. Well, and the dwarf coming out of the oh, earth and out of the trees and things. Oh, my word. Yeah, he was just vicious and mean. And oh. yeah, but I think there were a lot of these things going on. There were, But then again, Britain had that as well with their public service announcements and things like that. Oh, yeah. you know, I am the what the, the ghost of dark waters or something or whatever that was to Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, no, there was one of them that I really liked, and I actually have on DVD now, is um, Spuk im Hochhaus und Spuk unterm Riesenrad, which is um, 
two series about because I always loved ghosts. Yeah. And one of them was like ghosts, basically story about two ghosts in a tower block who sort of have to sort of do good deeds in order to find peace. And you just get to experience the whole tower block community. Yeah. Which is now quite nostalgic and funny. Um, and then the other one is, is set about three, you know, that, that big amusement park they have in, used to have in central Berlin that's now basically sort of from urban decay. Oh, um, the Spray... Spreewald, yeah. That's it, yeah. Spreewald, Spray Park. Yeah, Spray Park. Yeah, that was it. Um, and it was set there, and it was just these kids that go to visit their grandparents who are running the ghost train in that park, and they're right. following quite fun and three of the characters and there were actually cursed creatures um like a princess and some i don't know lord or something like yeah. that and they became alive and tried to take over like get back to their old castle and take over germany again and had right. to deal with modern technology and modern life and it was very amusing and I think I really, really love those. I really love those, yeah. I must admit, with the singing ringing tree tweet I put up probably got the most responses I've ever had from a tweet. It really triggered a nerve in loads of people in the UK from watching That triggered it. a nerve in a lot of Germans. Did you know how defensive <laughs> they were? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Such dark TV. Mm. Um, so, and what was your favourite food as a child? Um, I think spaghetti. My dad makes the best spaghetti in the world. I know people always say that about their dads, but yeah. um, he actually really, and it's sort of something we had every Saturday. So right. I remember coming home from school because we had Saturday school as well. Yeah. And walking up the staircase to our flat and I could already smell it. And it's still, when I go into one of those East German kind of, Plattenbau staircases it still triggers that kind of yeah. that feeling of smelling the spaghetti yeah. so I think that's just never changed yeah oh, it's a nice memory that though yeah <laughs> yeah and it is there anything you miss about the GDR obviously you have this this entire kind of nostalgia about it but that's because it's over now and I can I can be nostalgic about it it all finished off at a time where actually I was quite relieved that, you know, it came when it came because mm. when you um, got older, sort of an eighth grade or so, you had to do sort of instead of PE, you had to sort of like military training right. and things like that. And um, I remember I used to watch the older classes practice that in the schoolyard and I was terrified yeah. of it. So even and the I'm girls so glad would... I didn't have to do that, you know. So even the girls <laughs> would do military training. Oh yeah, yeah. As well, no, because in the UK that you know that there wasn't that level of uh, equality certainly during the seventies and eighties, really. Yeah, I suppose everybody was expected to sort of pull their weight. Yeah. yeah, and and I think when you kind of knew that when you were older and you sort of started thinking for yourself, which is when the hardcore um, propaganda classes kicked in, it's that when it got sort of really difficult and. You know, and I know I've always been, I don't know, I always had a gut feeling about things and I'm not very good at censoring myself. Um, so I don't know how I would have responded to certain things I would have felt are wrong or that I would have criticized because they don't make sense to me. But yeah. I never got to that point, so I'm quite glad. Right. Um, 
but I miss I miss the kind of you know that you when you were a kid I mean when I was six years old I was going to school on my own for quite a distance and kids were fairly safe you know you could play outside for hours and hours without parental supervision and you know there were a lot of dangers over there but not the kind of thing that people are worried about now so yeah. is there anything else you want to add that you think i've not covered that you think might be uh, interesting oh maybe sort of anecdotal things like we touched upon and i think just got distracted from it about that like my uncle um moved to the west and um in 1986 yeah and um shortly after my his mother my grandmother died and he wasn't allowed to come back for the funeral because as soon as you left, you were classed as sort of an enemy of the state, really. But he would try and um, send us parcels. So, you know, we would once in a while hear from him and then see, you know, he said, did you want anything you want me to send over? And I always wanted books, but of course he couldn't send those. Yeah. And um, he, um, he would send sweets like... You know, he'd send Mars bars and things like that. So we had one Mars bar for the family, and that was meticulously split up between the family members with a kitchen knife. And I had my little piece of Mars bar that I nibbled on for a month. A month? <laughs> I know, I made Wow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, you know, you'd send... Um, occasionally send sort of toys and things like that. But there was always this joke, the kind of saying that we have when you have a package you can't get into, that I, I still use that phrase here and people don't know what she's talking about. And I said, that's just, just as tight as a West German parcel. I can't get into it. It's because the Shazi obviously would get into it and try and take out anything that was, you know, not proper, wasn't that I didn't want. Yeah. And, um, and then you'd I'll sometimes end up, getting an open parcel that you know they quite clearly had gone through people in the west knew that and when they sent parcels they made it extra difficult to get into it right and so did that you think the stars you wanted you to know that they'd been in it as well i think i think yeah I, th- I can imagine i can imagine they did you know just wanted to make sure that yeah. we knew they were watching yeah a bit more psychological pressure if there wasn't yeah. enough already well it was um because obviously we had, you know, we weren't allowed direct contact with him because my dad was in the police. Um, we thought we were going to be quite clever and go through our grandma. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that he sends the parcels to her and then she sends them up to us. But, I mean, obviously they knew about everything. It was really naive to think that they didn't. I mean, I talked to colleagues, work colleagues later on, who actually did check their Stasi files. And one of them told me, that they knew everything. They knew when you went to a pub, they knew what, exactly what time he got there, what drinks he had, who he talked to, what they talked about, what time he left, which train he took home, like every single detail. And it was quite frightening, sort of. So, like I said, they would have known everything yeah. about how we handle things. Yeah. Well, I mean, anybody receiving a parcel from the West would presumably the post office would pass that information to the stasi yeah i mean they should have had like they had this, a, a department where sort of parcels would go through and they would be screened yeah um any anything else you think to um, oh, i was going to ask you what what music did you listen to when <laughs> um it was quite funny i wasn't 
when I was a younger kid, I wasn't particularly interested in music, but I think I remember that my older brother was really into Depeche Mode. Oh, okay. I up from him, and I know that they were massive in Germany and maybe not as massive over here. And, uh, they were quite quite popular over here, if I recall. Do you? Well, I suppose we still do Depeche Mode parties like designated parties yeah i'm not sure we go that far now <laughs> yeah well the germans if they get obsessed with something they go for it so um I can, i'm proud to say i was never a fan of david hasselhoff good for you yeah I he's know. over he's overrated <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's um but i think it was just more more I remember I had for some time I was a, like because I was a young teenage girl I was a fan of New Kids on the Block but everybody was yeah and that was that was after the wall came down but, yeah uh, it was just a typical eighties music and I still yeah. love you know? yeah so you listened did you listen to the uh, radio in the American the Rias yes we did yeah they had the charts on and if you had a if you had a tape recorder you'd sit there and hover with your finger over the record button. And hope that the DJ wouldn't talk through the song too much. Yeah, we used to do that over here quite a lot as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, the Alta Army, Rick Delisle, that was the DJ. Right, don't come with an American accent. Yeah, so that was very novel for us. Yeah, yeah, must have seemed like another planet, really. But so close as well, because, I mean, you yeah. go up the TV tower and you can see, you know, the whole of West Berlin. Yeah. Did you go up the TV tower at all? When or? I was a kid, like, I was probably about nine or so when I went up there, when I remember I went up there. But at that point, I didn't actively look out for the West. Yeah. Um it's my mind it all kind of blended together when you were that high up anyway so um, yeah and i do have i still have copies of um photos that my uncle took once he'd lived in the west and he came to visit west berlin and then took photos of the wall from the other side so i still have those photos but that's a bit that's a bit weird to think we were on the other side and um, yeah didn't get to us i do remember there was the thing that they called the sonderzug which was going through a part of Berlin that sort of crossed over West German territory, as far as I know. And it was this really long stretch that that train had to go, where, you know, obviously you couldn't get out. Yeah. Um, yeah, Sonderzug nach Pankow, which was a, um, a song also by, um, oh, what's the song? Udo Lindenberg, you know, who was kind of infamous east german artist who our government well the east german government wasn't particularly fond of because he was quite critical so yeah weird things like that wow there was i do remember there was an amazing tv show the zdf every christmas produced a children's mini series and um i remember one year that was um about kids that sort of go into a basement and, and manage to break through into, into East Berlin and into no man's land. And I called it the treasure and no man's land because um, they found some sort of treasure there. Yeah. And there was a hole in the wall and they looked out and I looked out over no man's land and um, saw the East German guards. 
And we were just absolutely entranced watching that. And then one of the kids said, be careful. You don't want them to find us and turn us into communists. (laughs) (laughs) And my dad's like, turn that off now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You don't, you don't want them turning us into communists and writing poems of Ernst. Yeah, exactly. Oh, (laughs) well, listen, Sabina, I have taken a lot of your time tonight. Um, yeah no it's been really interesting you know talking to somebody who you know uh lived in east germany and you know your your childhood there and what you experienced is is fascinating i overuse the word fascinating on this podcast but the more i talk to people (laughs) the more fascinated i i find i get but um i really do appreciate your time and you sharing um your stories and your um you know that, that that part of your life with us well you're most welcome it was it was fun just going through bizarrely fun some stuff was quite dark but um bizarrely kind of nostalgic to go through that again well that's all we had time for but sabina and i could have talked for hours and it was very humbling for her to share such a personal story with you and me There's extra information in the show notes, including Sabina's GDR TV recommendations. The show notes can be found at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 15. Don't forget, we're also on Twitter at Cold War Pod. And if you like what you're hearing, please do leave reviews on iTunes or with your podcast provider. Thank you very much for listening. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.